One of our dangers has been that we were so sure that we had the truth that we did not want any more. If anyone came with any more truth, we were afraid he was departing from the faith. The Lineage Journey Podcast, unscripted conversations that aim to help you on the journey of discovering your lineage. Join us as we take a deeper look into past lineage episodes and see the lessons we can learn for today. Dee Casper is director of the Core Evangelism Training Program. Dee lived 30 minutes from 3ABN World Headquarters for 21 years and had never heard of a Seventh-day Adventist. But by the grace of God, he found the message through 3ABN TV beginning in the fall of 2006. He was baptized in 2010 at the Arise Cornerstone program and has been involved in ministry ever since. He has served as a Bible worker, been a Bible teacher in an academy setting, and has taught in different schools of evangelism. He loves investing in young people and opening their eyes to the beauty of the everlasting gospel and the value that God places on each of them individually. Well, welcome to our Lineage Journey podcast. We thank those of you who've been listening to us throughout the whole season. If this is your first one, you're in for a treat. Today we have Dee Casper with us. Dee, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit? Tell us who you are, what you do, and where you're from in just a few sentences. Sure. So I work for the Pennsylvania Conference, and I run a discipleship and evangelism training program for young adults called CORE. So it's like a nine-month mission training program, okay. canvassing Bible work, cross-cultural missions, mental health, that type of thing. And so we're in eastern Pennsylvania on the same campus as Blue Mountain Academy. Okay. Are you originally from Pennsylvania? I am not. I'm from southern Illinois and didn't grow up in the church, but found the, the message through 3ABN okay. uh, locally on TV, which is what eventually brought me in. You're watching TV, 3ABN. How yeah. long ago was that? Just uh, 2016. Uh, is that really true? Uh, 20, 2006, that was 15 years ago. Wow, so 15 years ago, you were kind of introduced to Adventism. Yeah, and I, was, I got baptized in 2010 at the Arise program. Okay, okay. So you've had quite an action-packed 10 years since your baptism then. Yeah, pretty much went into ministry and never left. Okay, okay. All right, so today we're talking about a very important subject, and I would also probably say misunderstood. Yeah. Or not just also misunderstood, I think we could also say misunderstood. What's the word for uneducated that we want to use at this point? Like, uh, like maybe we're slightly ignorant or not as informed as we could be. Illiter- illiterate on the subject or yes. something. Yeah, people yes. don't really, the average person doesn't always know the issues. They just may know a date. So if we were to throw out the date 1888 uh, in, in a very small nutshell, because we're going to obviously go into the issues yeah. in a second. What is What happened in 1888? I think it was a massive opportunity for the church um, that God was intending to bring a perfect balance of the law and the gospel together at the heart of the Adventist message. And because there were many issues surrounding that politically and theologically at the time, that really got drowned out um, in the midst of that kind of brouhaha that took place. So where, where was 1888? It was in Minneapolis. It was the general conference session in Minneapolis in 1888. Um, that's that's like the event 
where God was trying to bring this message more clearly before the people, uh, the message of Christ and his righteousness, of justification by faith, and that perfect blending of the law and the gospel, and a Christ-centered emphasis to the Adventist message. That was brought before the brethren, the church leadership, Mm -hmm. and um, at the time was not warmly received uh, Mm -hmm. for many surrounding issues. Okay. Um, So... So 1888, we've got a general conference session in Minneapolis. Now, when, when I think of general conference session today, I just think of meetings and boring stuff. Now, but there was this message that was being presented at this, 18, at this 1888 session. You talk about the law and, and faith and work and so on that was to come together. Was that like devotional messages or was it a, a pre-planned kind of theological presentation to be given to the church or... It, or was session slightly different back then? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of both, I guess. They they would do a lot of studying together and addressing particular issues uh, and talking through them. It was, I think, less policy-heavy as what you'd see in a general conference session today, mm. um, based upon my my current understanding, at least. Um, the formatting, I think, wasn't exactly the way that we would recognize today mm. of, you know, okay. 50,000 people showing up to the Alamo Dome and watching people put boxes, you know, cards in a big box. You know, I think there was quite a bit more to it where they were working through and talking through pertinent things that needed to be studied. So they wanted to talk through issues about Daniel uh, and the 10 tribes well, and other issues. more like the formulation of our early doctrinal beliefs would happen. I think sessions. so. And, and smoothing out any, you know, things along those lines. Mm. Yeah. Okay. What would you say are some of the historical backdrop? What was some of the historical backdrop to 1888? What was the state of Adventism at the time? And, yeah, what did it look like, and why did this issue? You know, what was brewing? I think we had we were in a unique situation that we were bringing light to the table that our brethren and other movements did not understand or were not embracing, and there was a bit of a combative nature to that. Uh, that we kind of we're, we're wanting to stand for what is right, and at the time uh, we would fail in the way that we would navigate that in certain instances where we're trying to prove that we're right. Mm instead of having a tactful discussion on showing the truth as it is in Jesus. And so if you do a search in the Ella White app about argumentative discourse or argumentative, if you just search that phrase, she was not a fan of that approach. But you'd have an Adventist minister who roll into town, bring out the Baptist pastor and just nuke him in a debate in front of the community and thinking he was doing the Lord's service. Just that type of mm. approach. Combative. Yeah, that combative kind of chippy approach really wasn't an ideal way to do this. Um, James White was given this kind of heavy conviction. Um, they'd commissioned this picture that was called the Way of Life. And if you've seen it before, yeah, there's like yeah, the yeah. cross of Christ mm-hmm. in the middle, and the Tree of Life with the Ten Commandments hanging from it mm-hmm. is like directly in the center of the picture. Mm-hmm. And the implication was the law is what life is about. Yeah. And Jesus is crucified there, but he's smaller than the big tree with the Ten Commandments on it. And as time went on, once you get closer to about 1881, um, James was being uh, leading into his death, especially those months leading into his death, he was becoming increasingly convicted of the need to bring Christ more uh, predominantly before the people at the heart of everything that we teach and say. And him and Ella White would walk through the orchard there and have lots of conversations about this. Well, then James tragically died. But before he died, he was telling her, we need to slow down. We're killing ourselves. We need to write more and we need to get the gospel in the hands of our people. That was his conviction. But being kind of this workaholic, it was hard for him to follow through in his conviction fully. He ended up dying from overworking. And as he died at his deathbed, Ellen White was comforted by God and telling her that 
though one man has been laid to his rest, I will raise up other workers in his place. And this is a foreshadowing of what Jones and Wagner would do later in the early 1800s, leading in or the early mid to, I guess, mid 1880s, leading into the General Conference session of 1888. Um, but this was a conviction. He had a driving conviction. Adventism needs to make sure that Jesus is not lost sight of in our attempt to just be more right than the other guy. We need to have Jesus at the center of everything that we're teaching, saying, and doing because it makes those teachings even more powerful. And so that was a burden she had. She was preaching at a camp meeting in uh, 1882, and E.J. Wagner was present. He does not remember what she said, but he said it was so clear to him that Jesus was crucified for me. It was a, a massive paradigm shift for him, and he recognized I have to take what I have come to understand in my own personal conversion experience or deeper revival experience. I have to tell this to the world. And he started studying. Um, A.T. Jones is eventually converted, working in Walla Walla, planting churches, growing churches, does different conference roles. Eventually, the two of them work together at the Signs of the Times as editors. And this process kind of leads to them synergizing together and sharing messages and so forth. And this... They wrote some articles about the law of Galatians, the schoolmaster that leads us to Christ, being the moral law. And now James White was of this mind, and he had communicated this before. But the problem was we had kind of built our argument, this kind of polemic approach to Adventism. We had built our argument against Sunday keepers that that idea of the schoolmaster to lead us to Christ was the ceremonial law, not the moral law. And they felt that we would be losing a crowning argument of ours by saying that it's the moral law, mm-hmm. the Ten Commandments, and so a step to breaking the Sabbath, or exactly like yeah, you're, you're you're totally taking one of our best arguments. And so, G.I. Butler, uh, General Conference President, and Uriah Smith were both very upset about this. They end up writing to Ella White saying, "Hey, these guys are sharing something that's unorthodox." Um, E.J. Wagner's dad, J.H. Wagner, was also the same mind and wrote that many years mm-hmm. earlier, but. This this kind of process is he's upset about. It. They're both upset about it. They tell Ellen White. Ellen White eventually ends up writing a letter um, to Jones and Wagner in 18... I'm trying to think of when this is. She wrote this letter to them, I think around 1886. Um, and she basically told them like to not talk about this anymore because yeah, Ella White yeah. many times would say, hey, this is not the place to have this conflict between com- both sides, wasn't there? There was. Writing public articles. Yeah, so and that's what happened. The two publishing houses are kind of writing seemingly competing articles. She was never a fan of that. Uriah Smith and, and, and her husband got into that about who the king of the north and who the king of the south are and other situations. She just said like, this is, this is not the place for these types of conversations. She was not a fan of it. And so... The problem is that letter never gets to Jones and Wagner. Somehow it got lost in the mail. It never mm. got to them. And so they keep writing about it. And Uriah Smith and G.I. Butler were like, hey, you can't talk about this. Ella White said you shouldn't. They talk to her. She eventually reaches out to them, and they're very gracious in their response. This is something that's turned out to be controversial. You know, we won't write as prominently about this. And But the problem is, leading into the General Conference session of 1888, Willie um, and Ella White, I think, were on the train with Jones or Wagner coming east. Uh, I know at least one of them was. And word gets to G.I. Butler, he was so sick from the interactions that Ella White was having with him. She had to kind of tear into him on some stuff because he was not handling things the right way. He got so sick and stressed out over it, he wasn't even at the general conference session. Oh, wow. But Uriah Smith was there, and... 
word gets ahead that, you know, it seems as though Willie and Ella White are conspiring with Jones traveling and Wagner, together. you know, potentially traveling and talking and so forth. They'd met together and talked through some things before that at a cabin somewhere. And so G.I. Butler basically sends a message saying, stand by the way marks. Whatever's said, whatever's brought up, stand by the way marks. So everyone already has kind of a closed ear to whatever it is that Jones and Wagner are going to have to say because G.I. Butler has said, stay by the way marks. And Ella White had been writing pretty repeatedly in the review to be open, to be open to the Holy Spirit's mm. leading, to be humble, to be teachable. She didn't fully know what was going to happen, but God was clearly convicting her something important is on is right ahead of us. We didn't take that counsel, you know, there was it was still primed politically. And so one of the statements that was made, I think it was by Uriah Smith, but one of the statements that was made by some of the people that were present was, you know, I would have said amen to the stuff that Jones and Wagner were talking about but we just knew for sure that they were eventually going to say something about the long Galatians. So we didn't. So they kind of had closed hearts and minds Mm. to what was being presented. It's a super important subject and both sides are really approaching it relatively closed minded. Yeah. And so this, this ended up being kind of a nasty situation. So people would go back to the rooms and kind of like murmur and complain and even mock and make fun of Jones about his certain mannerisms and so forth. And Ella White was given a vision of this. And she says later, that I was never more impressed and under the weight of the Holy Spirit than during those meetings. It was so bad and discouraging for her. She literally said she wanted to leave. And the Holy Spirit told her, you have to stand your post. You can't leave. Because it was so discouraging to her to see what was happening. Um, Jones had some concerns about Uriah Smith's interpretation. And he was our specialist, right, on the book of Daniel. Mm -hmm. He'd written Daniel and Revelation he had some concerns about the 10 tribes that he had um, talked about and who would fit yeah. there. And Jones ended up being right about it, but he approached very graciously. Hey, I've seen something. I'd like to talk to you about it. There may be more information here than we thought. Uriah Smith wouldn't respond. He re- he sends again. Uriah Smith doesn't respond. And then it gets brought up uh, before the, the group there. They're supposed to study and talk about it during the general conference session. And Uriah Smith basically says, you know, well, I've not had time to study the matter. And that's when A.T. Jones loses it. And that one statement that gets quoted a lot by people where it basically Ellen White says, too sharp, Brother Jones, was in response to that very moment. He was frustrated. It's not it's not justifying, obviously, losing your temper, mm-hmm. but he basically made a snarky statement towards Uriah Smith that, you know, he, he doesn't know what he's talking about, but like he tried to talk with him and Uriah Smith wouldn't do it. He wasn't going to make time for this, you know, young buck that's bringing up different ideas. I'm the expert. Leave it to me. Mm-hmm. Never gave the guy the time of day. So now he gets brought up to talk about it. Jones is ready to talk about it, and Smith doesn't want to. And so it was it was kind of an unfortunate moment where personalities kind of won the day. And so G.I. Butler wasn't there. The message wasn't warmly received. And we're at a very difficult crossroads. What do we do? Mm-hmm. Because this was brought before the leadership of the church to take it and run with it, but that wasn't what happened. Would you say, just pause for a second, sure. would you say it was about, I mean, sometimes I've heard it said, well, it was, there was the younger and the older. Yeah. Is, is that kind of, you got these younger guys come along and then the, they're challenging the status quo of the older establishment. Do you reckon there was kind of some generational issues at play or? I think there certainly could have been. Is that more of a side issue? I, I don't know. I think there certainly could have been. There's an interesting statement you just reminded me of that's from W.W. Prescott. He says that one of our dangers has been that we were so sure that we had the truth that we did not want any more. If anyone came with any more truth, we were afraid he was departing from the faith. 
Hmm. And so I think it that felt it completed everything. Yeah, and so anything that sounds like progressive revelation or continuing to grow in our understanding of the message and its beauty seemed as a threat because we had primed ourselves to be the ones that were right. Right? We were so accustomed to standing for what is right that our identity was tied to being right. So to acknowledge that there's things that we don't know mm-hmm. or that we have yet we to learn. mistake in the past, then we, we What was a threat it. to our identity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that can happen to us today, it's right? It's true. If my identity yeah. is so tied to being right, being right, then if somebody challenges what I believe, you know, this is why Joshua Harris left Christianity, you know, was no longer married. His identity was tied to what he believed, right? Mm-hmm. In his book, you know, I Kissed Dating Goodbye and that whole situation, his identity was tied to that. He to said that, as much. He renounced the book, he renounced everything. And so. so he had nothing to stand on because his identity was tied to being right, not to being a child of God who's growing mm-hmm. and learning. And so that's certainly a big lesson for us. Mm-hmm. And how conflict is handled matters and how you address yeah, circumstances a... really does matter because and even I... if you are right, if you're doing it in a way that could be... You need to know your audience and communicate to where they are. And if they're not inclined to respect a younger person with seemingly new ideas, tread cautiously, you know, and respectfully in whatever ways you can. Honor their input in mm -hmm. whatever ways you can to get their buy-in, you know, but... That's, We haven't learned how to have respectful conflict yet. No. And we're 100... X number of years. And on. she wrote so many words about that. That it was did. such a clarion call from her for so long. We can't act like this. Yeah. To have civil discourse is so important. And so that was a big powder keg. The 18, the the long Galatians was a big one. The situation with the 10 tribes and who it mm-hmm. is was a big one. And so what do we do? Because it was a big opportunity that was missed. So Ella White and Jones and Wagner take the show on the road. They're going to bring the message to the people. And what began in 1889, well, here's the other reason why this is so important. In 1888, there was a, the U.S. government was seeking to pass a Sunday law. This was seriously happening. The Blair Bill. And so A.T. Jones debates with Senator Blair like two months later after that general conference session. It was in December of 1888. Yeah. And the first edition of the Great Controversy was was written in 1888. And the church didn't really take hold of that quickly and spread it with our canvassing programs and our literature evangelists, they they chose to not do it. So Ellen White went into debt printing it, making the plates, and then the church really wasn't distributing it as, as, a, as a key moment of priority at that stage, mm. which is really interesting because when that crisis is right before us, what was God doing to prepare us for that? Mm. The book, The Great Controversy, mm-hmm. Jones debating Senator Blair on the topic of religious liberty, and then the message of Christ, our righteousness in the general conference session. These were the three things that were meant to prepare us to stand in the crisis that was to come. And I believe those are the three things that are still going to prepare us because that's going to come back around. But that A.T. Jones debate Senator Blair eventually gets tabled. They don't do it. But this is this is a big moment of prophetic significance happening that we we still think is future. But yeah. what's happening then? It, and that's and the it, point. It's the what if moment. What this, if? this is that moment yeah. where it could have all gone down. Yeah. And, that, and Ella White said that many times after this had happened, that we could have been home air now. And so this was that moment. This is why it's so important. And I think re, there are varying views on what transpired, what it was about. And I we can talk about resources at the end on, on things I think have sure, been sure. pretty dis, dispassionate in evaluating it. But I think that it's really important for us, regardless, we need to figure out what was going on then, because history is going to repeat itself. And we need to make sure that we're on the right side of history this time. Mm. And I think that's the warning to us from what could have been in 1888. Mm. So in 1889, 
Jones, White, Ellen White, and Wagner bring this message before the people. They did a week so of- pause for a second. Yes. So 1888, the messages have been presented. That was in October. October. Yeah. And you'd say overwhelmingly been rejected. It was not warmly received. Not it warmly was not. received. Okay. No. So, yeah, not warmly received. Um, it, it was it was a loss for us. I mean, yeah. that's the way Ellen White talks about it. So they're it presenting this message, but let's just unpack it a little bit more because we talk. There was the conflict about the ten tribes. Then there's the law in Galatians. But what was the per, what were they using the law in Galatians to try and show? Because obviously, our church we don't talk about the law in Galatians anymore at all. So, like, what were they using the law in Galatians to? What was the end goal of that? What, yeah. what were they arguing that for? Yeah, it wasn't just for the argument's sake. It's a good question. The, the main thing they were trying to bring before the people was that the law is not our means of salvation. Okay. Ellen White would make statements us. later. Yeah, it points us to Jesus. Okay. Ellen White would make statements later that we've preached the law, the law, the law, but not Christ. We've preached the law until we're as dry as the hills of Gilboa. So she was saying that we have milked the law without infusing it with the gospel. And the problem is that's not the way this was supposed to happen. Mm. So what Jones and Wagner were doing was pointing us in that direction. They weren't seeking to tear down an established view, which wasn't actually James White's view. James White agreed with what Jones and Wagner would say. Mm. Ella White later would agree that it was both the law, it was both the ceremonial law and the moral law, but primarily the moral law was what she was shown later. That's kind of like, I mean, I'm sure you've seen these some of these preachers in, in, in church use that, that illustration of the, the law is the mirror mm-hmm. and then the water is Jesus right. and you look in the mirror to see if your face is clean right. and that drives you to the water, which cleans up your face, kind of that analogy of yeah. the law is there. It can't clean you, but it tells you where you need to go. Now, that's a very another message of 1880. It's much more complex right. than that, but they're, 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 they're trying to use the law as or show that the law's purpose is to take us to Jesus. Right, and I think the important thing to know is that the purpose of this message was not to abandon what we had believed. It was to bring even greater power and clarity and a Christ-centered emphasis to what we already believed. So they were not tearing down our established views. They were bringing an even greater Christ-centered approach to those views that would be even more effective in our public evangelism and would lead to revival in our own people, which is what happened in 1889. Okay, well, we've come about halfway through, so we're going to pause for a moment here. Um, just hold your thoughts because we're going to get into a little bit, as, as you mentioned, what happens in 1889, which is really the fallout. And then we're going to look at, you know, the fallout from then up until now. So thank you. Hold your thought. And for those of you who are listening, thank you for listening. We're just going to take a short little break and we'll be back right with you in just a few moments to continue this message on 1888. Lineage is a nonprofit organization kept running by generous donors like you. Support us today on patreon.com forward slash lineage journey. History shapes identity. Identity shapes mission. And a clear mission determines the trajectory of your future. Knowing where you come from is key to understanding your present purpose and your future mission. Lineage Journey is a series of videos that will take you on a journey through time, discovering the key people and events that have shaped the Christian faith. From the Waldenses to Martin Luther to Zwingli. From England to France, Switzerland to Germany, the light broke over the horizon of Europe, piercing through the Dark Ages and then spread out over the world. As the United States of America rose to supremacy, Christianity formed the bedrock of this great nation. And so from the Great Awakening to the Great Disappointment and beyond, lineage follows the journey of God's church throughout time. 
immersing you in the places, the stories, and the people through whom Christianity has shone the brightest. Join us on a journey through time. Follow us on social media at Lineage Journey or check out our website at lineagejourney.com. Lineage Journey not only produces video content, but instructive and illuminating resources to teach young and old about Christian history. Lineage has produced an educational coloring book for people of all ages. It includes original artwork from Ashley Bloom, highlighting the various heroes of the Reformation. Each scene has a matching story, and there are also QR codes to connect you to the website for more information and to watch the videos. There are also fun facts and memorable quotes to accompany the scenes to color in. Designed for young and old alike, get your copy now at lineagejourney.com. Okay, well, welcome back. We're looking in this episode at 1888. We did a lineage episode on that, but it was only five minutes long. So we appreciate this opportunity to interview with uh, D. Casper, who studied this subject at great length and is very passionate about it and loves to preach on it and teach on it and share about it. So we've looked at the background of 1888, what some of the issues were, some of the personalities involved that led to a, uh, brought themselves to a head in 1888 at the General Conference session there in Minneapolis, Minnesota. But now we're going to kind of progress on and look at what happened after. So the message has been overwhelmingly rejected or whatever term we want to use, but people haven't accepted it. Now, what happens next? Where, do Jones, where does Jones go? Where does Wagner go? What does Ellen White do? We obviously can't unpack all of it, but what, what are some of the things that happen in the next year or so? So it took off like wildfire and rather quickly. So Jones and Wagner and Ellen White, they'd say, we need to take this to the people ourselves directly. And so uh, one of the first things that happens early in 1889, I think it's in January or February, there's a week of prayer that happens at South Lancaster Academy outside of Boston. Mm -hmm. And Jones is doing the meetings, and Ellen White would reflect upon it later. She did some kind of real-time commentary about it uh, and had some of her messages that she also shared in those meetings. It was published in the Review, I believe, Mm. um, that you can find. But it's Anyway, she talks about it, and she says that basically every student was converted as a result of those meetings. It was so overwhelming because people were finding that, yes, there is a standard, but Jesus is our perfect source of righteousness. This idea of like, you know, grace or justice or, you know, mercy or justice or love and the law or the gospel and the law, they are not at odds with one another. That's that's a dichotomy that need not exist And this perfect blending of, yes, there is a standard, but Christ met that standard and can empower you to do the same by his strength and by his grace was a liberating and healing message. The people were recognizing that the picture of God that can be given when you have such a a law-focused approach is what Jesus said about the Pharisees. You throw a heavy burden upon men, but you won't lift a single finger to help them. Right, So if we're just throwing this what-you-ought-to-be message at the people, but we don't communicate the power of Christ to transform the life and to enable you to succeed in what he expects, there's a lot of freedom that comes in that when it's done properly, but there's a lot of bondage and fear that comes if it isn't there. Mm. So this was bringing a great power, and even this would bring even more holiness to the Avent movement, not less. 
But people were afraid of that. They were thinking like these guys, like there's this emotional stir in response to it because people were genuinely repenting at these messages. They were standing before an example of this is W.W. Prescott, who was initially an opponent to this message, who at the time was the president of the Battle Creek College. W.W. Prescott fought the message, but eventually the Holy Spirit gets a hold of him and he stands before the entire student body and his faculty, and for I think it said five minutes, wept uncontrollably in front of them. Mm. And when he and that's a long time, 30 seconds is an awkward pause. Yeah. But for multiple minutes, he's weeping, and then he testifies before his own students and faculty, I have been fighting against the Holy Spirit in this message. And this is the type of response they would have. People would stand up. They would have long testimony services after the meetings of people saying, I'm finding freedom and and, and assurance of salvation for the first time in my life, though I've been an Adventist for years. This liberating message that never downplayed the standard, but made the standard achievable through the merits of Christ. Mm. And it was so freeing to people. This was the experience everywhere they went. So they're preaching at camp meetings that were huger than they'd ever been or much larger than they'd ever been attendances up, uh, different places they would preach. It was a similar response, this resounding kind of tie that was growing. But the critics of this message would say it's too emotional. It's eliciting too strong. It's fanaticism. It's emotionalism. They they didn't like what they saw because it wasn't people sitting in pews with mean mugs, you know, mm. being told what they aren't or something. Like, it. the gospel should lead to some form of response. And they, it kind of made people uncomfortable. Uh, some of our brethren who were not a fan of the message, they just felt like what I'm seeing makes me uncomfortable of people crying and repenting and testifying in public and confessing their sins one to another. This would happen that people would actually confess that they had been wronging someone else in the same church. So this was bringing genuine heartfelt repentance and revival. It was not an emotionally stirred, emotionally charged, you know, Pentecost, Pentecostal-like fanaticism. This was a genuine heartfelt response. And it was taking the church by storm World missions was growing uh, exponentially. The health message and medical missionary work was growing exponentially. Our, ta- our camp meetings were bigger than they had ever been. God was showing heaven's endorsement of this message in such a powerful way. That so it was just like throughout the 90s. Would 1889, you say? 90, 91, 92, you know, around that time okay. frame. Ellen White eventually ends up being sent to Australia in 92, I think. Uh, 91, 92. And so. Um, but there was still work that was happening. It's true, because this is when the missionaries went to Africa, yeah. South America, Asia. The, the, those are the years that it just... And, and this is the moment Ellen White would, go, would be saying during the time, Wagner and Jones would say it clearly, and Ellen White would also reflect on it later, that literally the loud cry was happening in that moment. That the latter rain was falling, the loud cry was happening, and God was reviving his church. And the message was now so much more powerful than just being more right than the other guys. It could bring healing and freedom and peace to our own people, let alone to people who knew nothing about Adventism. And Ellen White was frustrated that the picture of Adventism in the you know world of evangelicalism or whatever you would call it at that time was basically the Adventists just preach Moses and Sinai. That's all these guys are about, a bunch of legalists. This tore down that completely because it was so Christ-centered, but it didn't let go of any of the key components of the Adventist message. So it wasn't like you choose Jesus or doctrine. Jesus was at the center of every doctrine Mm. they were preaching, and it made a radical difference. Prescott went down to Australia. Once Ellen White was sent there, um, she asked for them to send Jones, and they wouldn't send him. She asked the church to send Jones. 
She asked it again. They wouldn't send him. Then she asked for them to send Prescott. Prescott became a champion for that message, along with Jones and Wagner. He doesn't get talked about as mm. much. Okay. He became a great champion for the message, especially for evangelism. He would teach. He would basically do a series of quote-unquote gospel meetings for like a week or two before he even touched the Adventist message in his public meetings. Just preaching the gospel in such a beautiful and powerful way. And people would think, this is amazing. And then he would share the Adventist message through such a Christ-centered lens, not an argumentative lens that we had typically been using, that people were rapidly embracing the message. And we didn't downplay our message. We just made it better. Mm. And so Ella White wanted that approach to the camp meeting at Armadale in Australia. I forget the year for this. 93, 94 is my guess, but somewhere around there. Um, maybe 92, but I think it was 93, 94. You can find those messages, some of them, in the Adventist Pioneer Library sells a book called In the Spirit's Power, or you can just Google and just type in W.W. Prescott, P-R-E-S-C-O-T-T, and then write The Armadale Sermons, A-R-M-A-D-A-L-E. Okay. There was a camp meeting that happened in Armadale, and in those days, our camp meetings were an evangelistic series. Mm-hmm. They weren't this like a bunch of Adventists hanging uh, out, yeah. patting ourselves on the back and eating, you know, fake meat and stuff like there was this is a place where it's actually outward facing not just yeah, evangelistic yes. baptisms and so but even at that stage already people thought adventists were legalists some of them thought adventists were anti-trinitarians already because there was a movement of that in australia and so they thought all we're going to hear is moses and sinai we're not going to these meetings well what they did ellen white's assistant i forget her name but ellen white's assistant um was transcribing prescott's sermons as he preached them and they would print them immediately and distribute them in the community while it's happening. They were live streaming before that was a thing. They literally would would transcribe it and they would give it to the community in pamphlets while the meetings are still happening. And once people heard what was being said, they thought, maybe I should go. And Ella White at the beginning of that book or the Google document, either one you find the PDF, she gives the most resounding endorsements of Prescott's model of evangelism and the results that I've ever seen. And she says that People walked on this campus, on this property, and their faces would go pale, and they would say that this man is inspired. Other people would say, we have never seen Jesus preached like this. Mm. So they were totally ambushed by the beauty of the gospel, thinking they were just coming to hear a bunch of legalists. And the other response that was said was that not one of those messages felt like a quote-unquote doctrinal discourse. But yet Jesus was the center of every meeting. And then they talk about what was actually preached, the nature of Christ, the nature of man, the law, the Sabbath, the state of the dead, creation, the mark of the beast. Like he actually addressed the Adventist message, but through a Christ-centered lens, not an argumentative lens. And Ellen White said, this is the way we need to do evangelism going forward. And we never adopted it. Hmm. And so our model is still largely based upon arguing with people who don't believe what we believe. Right, Our public meetings, not everywhere, I'm saying it's all bad, I'm just saying that there is an even better approach that Prescott was using, that Ellen White endorsed, that we, I think, could really benefit from embracing. And she, basically that model is, is has far more success because it's not arguing against an evangelical minister who's not even in the room, yeah. right? Or bringing up questions that these people don't even have. It's just telling the truth as it is in Jesus. And that was a simplistic beauty of the 1888 message and what was happening, and that was the effect Eventually, this things kind of died off. You know, Jones and Wagner dealt with a lot of, they were isolated. Um, they were kept from being able to preach in certain pulpits. Uh, eventually, Ellen White gets, you know, shipped off to Australia, mm-hmm. which wasn't her choice, but she honored church authority. It, there was a, a, a difficult moment. Part of what was a precursor to 1888 that led to problems 
1888 and afterwards, G.I. Butler was actually teaching in our seminary about varying degrees of inspiration. So basically, some things in Scripture are more inspired than others. Well, the problem with that view is that who chooses what's inspired or what isn't? And what basically happened was that same approach was applied to Ellen White. So when she's writing letters of rebuke and exhortation to the church about rejecting Jones and Wagner, people are believing she's been compromised by these guys. We can't trust her. And so what she's saying now is not inspired, but the set that she said whenever we were right is inspired. And it just gets really nasty and, and ugly from there. And so that was kind of the tenor of what went on during that season. And so later, um, Jones and Wagner eventually end up both leaving the church, not together, but in different fashions. And How long did they stick in after, after 1888? To the mid-1890s, even tying into the late 90s. Okay. I think A.T. Jones would say that he still believed the message even yeah, unto yeah. death but he left the movement, the organized movement. He got pretty salty about an organized movement Mm -hmm. because men who were in leadership of the organized movement were not in favor of what he was doing, and I don't really think that was was wise of him. Uh, He kind of got yoked up with Kellogg for a bit, too. Wagner had his own issues. Um, Eventually, I think, had an affair with his personal assistant or something, and and it just just was a kind of a bad scenario. It's sad, really. It's tragic. I think Prescott had a, a, a little season of falling out with Ellen White, but eventually things came back around, I think. So it's... It's really unfortunate that this happened the way that it did, but it's for our admonition, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, these lessons of our past. He was speaking of the Old Testament, but it's still relevant to us. And in fact, the 1888 scenario is a repetition of the issue of Israel. God was bringing a message of liberation by faith, and he had brought messengers who had good news of what was to come, and they were despised, Joshua and Caleb and Moses being the prophet. It happened again with Jones, Wagner, and Ella White. What happened with Smith and Butler? Did they ever end up accepting the message? Well, there's varying views on that. My understanding is that Uriah Smith, there is a moment, and people will quote this. If you read through all of the 1888 materials, you can see this for yourself. Um, but Ella White basically makes a statement where she says that Brother Smith has fallen upon the rock. And people like to kind of plant a banner on that statement. But if you keep reading the 1888 materials... Some time goes by after that moment, and she's getting back on Smith's case for the same issues. And so it seems like that was, from what I read, it doesn't seem like it was a permanent reform for him. It was hard for him to, to, to mm. live that down. G.I. Butler was sick most of his life from that point forward. He really didn't do well either. In fact, he was no longer General Conference President by, I think, 1889. Uh, oh. I, I forget when it was. He wasn't. It wasn't much longer after that that he didn't fill that role anymore anyway. A.G. Daniels was more inclined to support the message, especially after the fact. The church actually commissioned him in the early 1900s to research what happened then, what were the issues, and where Mm -hmm. are we now? And his basic conclusion was, I think it was Christ, Our Righteousness, or Christ and His Righteousness. I think it's a book that A.G. Daniels wrote that talks about this. But his conclusion was basically, we never accepted it um, at that stage. It still wasn't the case. And so it's, it's a scenario that I believe connections can be made from what happened with the nation of Israel and the fact that they rejected Joshua and Caleb bringing good tidings to the people and Moses, which led to them wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Ella White makes connections to that. Mm -hmm. And uh, Taylor Bunch, in doing his history of what transpired based upon the history of A.G. Daniels and so Mm -hmm. forth, makes the same connection. I think a very compelling case. Mm -hmm. I believe that Jones and Wagner were the modern-day Joshua and Caleb 
they were spot, they were spurned, they were rejected, and we're still currently wandering in the wilderness. But here's the beautiful story, and Bunch makes such a great point for this. He makes the point that God stayed with the movement in the wilderness. That had Joshua and Caleb tried to start or go into the promised land by themselves, God would not have accompanied them. God stayed with the movement even in the wandering season and still brought them into the promised land. And that's the good news for us today. Though it is a dark and difficult chapter that isn't the prettiest to look at, this is part of us facing the Laodicean message. That we're LOI diagnosed the Advent movement as being a Laodicean state in 1852. We weren't even incorporated yet, and we were already in that condition. Mm -hmm. So it's not offensive to say it. She said it. It's just the truth. And I think part of us accepting that Laodicean message is acknowledging that we can't live like the Egyptians, that there's no losses on our scorecard. Mm -hmm. There are some chapters in our story that we wish weren't there, Mm. and they're there for our opportunity to learn from it and do something about it. And so I think that's what we can take from this, not getting chippy, not getting frustrated, not blaming this guy or that guy or whatever. There's multiple roles that were played throughout this process, but I think the lessons for us to apply is to recognize that I need to be open to where the Spirit of God is moving, even if it isn't what I see, or if it flies in the face of my own personal quote-unquote expertise. You know, like Uriah Smith was an expert in our church in some of these matters, and he did not like that someone was challenging his position. G.I. Butler was an expert in certain areas he felt and didn't like being challenged. Jones and Wagner approached this in a very humble way, and I think they get a bad rap from certain people that I don't think is fair. Ron Duffield wrote a book called Return of the Latter Rain, Volume 1, that basically is looking at the primary sources surrounding this whole narrative from 1844 all the way to 1891. That's Volume 1. And so he looks at the issues going into it theologically, what the prophetic trajectory was, and he he looks, what did Ellen White say? What did Willie White say? What do people who were at those meetings say? Not just what historians are saying, because there's a confusing picture that's painted right now, and it's hard to understand who's right, who's not. The best thing to do is go a layer below the historians to the primary sources and make your own decision. Mm -hmm. And so Ron Duffield provides the primary sources. You make up your own mind. And so that really helped me to get a bigger picture of what was going on mm. in some of the scenarios. It's called Return of the Latter Rain, oh, Volume yeah. 1 okay. by Ron Duffield. You can get you can go to ellenwhiteaudio.org and listen to it for free. It's a big book. And if you skip the yeah, footnotes, yeah, if you skip the footnotes, you're missing the whole book. They're very important. Mm. The nice thing is the audiobook actually reads the footnotes in the context of the paragraph itself. So it's not that you read, you stop, you turn to the back, mm-hmm. and then you come. It, yeah, it's yeah. all in context. That's good. It's a very enjoyable experience. It's like a soap opera. It's it's very mm-hmm. it, it's a drama that you're listening to as it goes on. And I still have question marks that I wonder about G.I. Butler and Uriah Smith because it's not totally clear. Mm-hmm. I don't see any clear statements that say they totally came around and regretted what had happened and changed their perspective. I didn't see that. Um, mm-hmm. I don't see that. Again, the Prescott's writings are uh, the Armadale sermons. W.W. Prescott, you can find that. Mm. And then Taylor Bunch wrote a book called uh, The Advent Movement in Type and An- the Yeah, The Advent, The Exodus and the Advent Movement in Type and Anti-Type. Okay. Taylor Bunch wrote a book. There's two books that are similar to that. And we can probably put a link on the website or something for those if people mm. want to find them. Okay. They give some more history. But uh-huh. I think we I think Adventism's best days are just before us because I think that train's coming back around mm. and this time a W is going to get put on the scorecard. I fully believe that. Mm. And I think us taking responsibility by studying the message for ourselves and studying the history for ourselves from primary sources and us actually sharing this message 
is going to lead to the latter rain falling again, mm. the loud cry happening again, and this time Jesus is coming to take us home. Mm. Amen. I believe Amen. it. What would you say, maybe just wrapping up, what haven't we learned yet that we need to learn? I think our people are largely unacquainted with the history. Okay. I don't think there's this grand conspiracy that people are hiding it from us. I just think that we don't know. I didn't. And you know, I went through a Bible college. I went through a lot of these things. Once I had access to the history, I knew what to do. And it gave me a clear understanding of what my marching orders were. I think that's our greatest responsibility right now. That's the statement that comes to mind from Ellen White, that mm-hmm. we have nothing to fear for the future, except that we forget the way the Lord has led us in our past and his teachings. And in 1888, a Sunday law was seeking to be passed. What was God doing to prepare the church to stand in the most important crisis the world will ever see? The message of Christ, our righteousness, liberty of conscience, and um, the book, The Great Controversy. Mm. And I think those three things are going to be of paramount importance again right now. Read the book, The Great Controversy. She wrote an updated version from 1888 that we generally circulate today. Read The Great Controversy. Study the message of Christ, our righteousness. Jones and Wagner had the book Lessons on Faith, Living by Faith. Anything that's in the Ella White app is written during the years whenever we weren't concerned about what they were saying. Some people are like, oh, I can't read them because they left. But Ella White actually said very clearly two things. One, she said that even if these guys fall away, the message is true and should mm-hmm. be embraced before they fell. And two, she said they're using language that I could not find words for. Some people say you don't need to read Jones and Wagner, just read Desire of Ages and Steps to Christ. She makes it very clear that these guys, the, the conversation she had with James in the orchard that we talked about mm-hmm. at the beginning, these guys were saying the same stuff that James said. She said that I couldn't find words for. Mm. And that's why every part of my body said amen when they were preaching it and why I endorsed it. And so we do need to read what they were saying Mm -hmm. during those seasons, Prescott too. And -hmm. if we do the research, it will be clear what our marching orders are. And what I found in my own personal study and in sharing the message, it's highly liberating. It's powerful and it doesn't downplay Adventism. It makes it even more beautiful and attractive to our own people and to the outside. Well, thank you. I mean, I think that's what it, it, the 1880 is where we see that perfect blend between, you know, where we see Christ come alive in our teachings, in our doctrines, and and give us that real purpose for existing as a church and as individuals, and to, where we see the place of Jesus. And you know, we we on a previous week we've had Sebastian Braxton here, where he was speaking about the doctrine being restored in that's right in the Reformation and how one of the key aspects of the Reformation was understanding who Jesus is. That's right. In its in his full glory, understanding that through the doctrines, they all give a piece of Jesus. And I think this this is in, in some ways the Adventist version of that where we have to understand this, this this relationship between the doctrine, but then how how understanding that correctly shows who Jesus is, which gives the gives the full picture and the, the law and the gospel aren't separated. That's they, it. They're, they're together in Christ at the center of all of them. And heaven gave its greatest endorsement by pouring out the latter rain and the loud cry in response to that approach to the Adventist message. Mm. I think that's its biggest yeah. argument yeah. in favor. Yeah. Well, thank you for being with us. Glad to be thank here. Thank you for sharing from your study and your passion about 1888. And those of you who are listening, there's a couple of resources that Dee mentioned. We'll just mention them again. You have the book, The Return of the Latter Rain by... Volume 1 by Ron Duffield. Ron Duffield. And if you just Google Armadale Sermons by W.W. Prescott, A-R-M-A-D-A-L-E, mm-hmm. or you can buy it from the Adventist Pioneer Library. It's called In the Spirit's Power. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you for being here with us and sharing on this podcast. For those of you who are listening, thank you for subscribing to the Lineage Journey podcast. 
And we pray that as you listen to this, it will aid you in your spiritual journey as you understand more. And as you attempt and endeavor to live out your life um, as a witness for Christ, wherever you may be. May God bless you. Thank you for being a part of the Lineage Journey team. And we pray that God may continue to bless your ministry wherever you are. Thank you for listening. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Lineage Journey is supported by your generous donations. Did you know that you can donate on a monthly basis? Any amount from $2 to 100 or whatever you decide through patreon.com forward slash lineage journey. Your donations go towards the cost of producing our varied content and we thank you for your support.